When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick here to talk about the offense here uh, against the Cardinals on Sunday. I'll be doing the show alone tonight. Uh, had a late cancellation and uh, no backup, but uh, we'll, this is a first and we'll just uh, work our way through it. Uh, so kind of an ugly win, obviously, against the Cardinals. Uh, everyone seems to admit that a lot of late foot by the Cardinals offense uh, lost in that. I think is a great drive by the Ravens offense in the middle of that 18 point deluge by the Cardinals to uh, run the ball right down their throats on a, on a four or five minute TD drive there to, to pull ahead again. Uh, Cardinals had some good fortune down the stretch. They had some soft defense from the Ravens. The good fortune come in the, in the form of a very bad misplay on the onside kick uh, where Aguilar did not uh, come up and attack the ball properly. Uh, Had a, uh, you know, a couple of drives where the defense obviously was very soft, uh, moved the ball downfield, generally kept the ball inbounds with a lot of short throws, and and it did take the the Cardinals time to move up the field. Um, and they eventually did have a chance after collecting that onside kick to kick a field goal, get within seven again, and then miss the uh, uh, the onside kick the second time around. Uh, even though Aguilar clearly was the target of that second onside kick. And uh, the Ravens are finally able to put the game away. So uh, not the prettiest win, certainly, but a win nonetheless, a road win. And the Ravens now come home. They'll play six of their last nine uh, at home. That's a pretty big advantage. They have three huge games coming up the next three weeks. They'll play the Seahawks, then the Browns, then the Bengals in a Thursday night game. One of the big scheduling advantages the Ravens have this year. Uh, By the way, we have found out that the Sunday game will not be flexed. I don't know if rules would have actually precluded the Ravens from being moved to Sunday night against the Browns, but that is not going to happen. And so uh, we're within the 12-day window now. The Ravens will stay at their at their standard 1 o'clock spot on Sunday, and then they'll play the Bengals on Thursday. So a nice uh, – didn't cut out a few hours of that between game time. Um, is definitely a, a positive for the for the Ravens at this point that they now know about. Uh, before we get into the to the offensive game, I, I, you know a lot of trade news today, and I think we address that first uh, just to just to get through it and talk a little about the Ravens standing pat. That's the big news. Uh, they reportedly uh, made calls today, looked around, prices too high on a number of players, and uh, I know there's a lot of people upset about that, but the Ravens are are very. A very good record of judging what the market is and what they want to pay for things relative to draft capital. Um, as soon as this happens, frustrations rise, and there's a lot of people claiming the Ravens have never made a great draft pick before. And of course, that's not true. They've made lots of good draft picks. Um, I would also point out this important fact that the DaCosta era of GM is not the exclusive DaCosta impact on the draft time in Ravens history. So if you want to go back and talk about past good draft picks, you really have to go back to the beginning of the Ravens when DaCosta was an area scout. Um, and uh, he's assisted Ozzie Newsom, grown through the ranks, and in fact, the second most dominant figure in Ravens draft history uh, over the years, uh, be a, a Ozzy's right-hand man, obviously for many years before he took that GM job. In fact, you know, one of the things he said is, is how long it had been 
uh, in terms of the weight for that job. They, in fact, they paid him uh, as a uh, near GM for much of that time. And Ozzy, in the end, um, you know, very gracefully handed over the position to him and moved over to DaCosta's right hand, where uh, he still presumably has some wisdom to add in the in the draft room as well. So uh, I think if you're if you really talk about the drafts just since 2019, which was the first official one to DaCosta, um, you're missing out on the entire DaCosta story. Uh, we're just starting to see the 2020 draft unfold and just how magnificent that was. Um, with, uh, you know, Matt Apique and Stone and even like a fourth round pick like Duvernay really, really working out as a Pro Bowl return man. Um, but lots of uh, and Patrick Queen, of course, finally coming into his own in his fourth year. Um, but you know, I think there's there's a certain frustration anytime your team does not make a trade deadline move. Um, and then there's there's, uh, you know, a, a thought that, oh, the world is ending. This, in fact, is a very complete football team. You know, the additional icing on the cake they could have added via an edge rusher, via a, uh, you know, a backup left tackle, an interior defensive lineman, a cornerback, a wide receiver, all of which might have been possible positions where they'd have looked for somebody. Even another safety might have been a possibility. Um, All of those positions that they might have added, they would be icing on the cake. And whoever's, you know, coming in, so let's say a wide receiver, somebody else is going to have to sit for additional snaps. So that means an Nelson Aguilar is going to miss snaps and whatnot. I think one of the very cogent points I've heard today is is that, and this is Rebeck that brought this up, is that, you know, DaCosta has made more moves at the deadline of significance than Ozzy did in his entire tenure here. It's very different, very difficult to make trades at the deadline, unlike the NBA or in, certainly in Major League Baseball where there's no cap to worry about, Um in the latter, obviously, the former has a cap to worry about. But the the uh, uh, in the NFL, the cap considerations really nix a lot of deals. And so even the Henry deal might have been difficult. Last year, the Roquan deal was very difficult for the Ravens because they, they basically had to pay extra draft capital in order to get cap relief. So did they really trade a second and a fifth for Roquan? No, they they you know the price probably would have been a third, um, possibly even a little bit less than that, or a le- late third anyway. For Roquan, had they had they not had to buy a large amount of cap space from the Bears to to cover his his current contract in the last year. So it's a it's a uh, you know there's a lot of considerations that I think are um, beyond the typical the patience of the entire Twitterverse to, to, to accept on some of this. And, and I think that's, that's part of the frustration. I understand people get frustrated. They don't get a new player. They, they see it happen in other sports. They probably see it happen in baseball more than any other sports where other teams acquire a big starting pitcher and the Orioles don't, or, you know, whatever your favorite team is, doesn't make a move of the deadline and you throw your arms up and you just say, what are you doing? You know, I can do better than this. Well, the truth of the matter is there are a lot of considerations and the Ravens are a team specifically with an unbelievable raft of free agents leaving. That will create a lot of draft picks for the Ravens, but not until 2025. So they probably were looking to trade some 2025 draft capital today during the day, and they couldn't really find a taker to get it at the at the value they thought that draft capital had. So I understand that. The 2024 draft picks in particular are extremely precious to this team because they're the only um, hole-plugging corks they have, so to speak, um, uh, until next year. They don't have a lot of money to spend to, to go out and get free agents, and they're really going to have to do it through the draft and through undrafted free agents, so that draft capital extremely important to the Ravens. So I understand why they didn't part with it. I thought they took a very measured approach. Um, the, the notion of trading a second for Josh Jacobs in particular is freaking ridiculous. Uh, I don't think, I, I don't even think the, the Raiders are actually holding out for that. I think they might've wanted a third. Um, you know, I'd offered a fourth and 25, maybe for Jacobs, the same as, same as Henry probably. But the, the problem with Jacobs is, uh, he has not played well this year, which is, uh, you know, obviously a big, a big problem, including our yards after contact number, which is not good. Um, and I understand the the Oakland offensive line is not good. They're probably not getting good level two opportunities. He'd probably be better here. And yet I don't, uh, uh, you know, I don't think whoever he takes, he takes carries from and whether it's Hill or Edwards right now or Keaton Mitchell, when he comes back, I'm just not that excited about that exchange. I'd rather have 
you know, an ex- a, a breakaway speed guy in Mitchell who adds a dimension to the offense over Jacobs, um, you know, in, in terms of the difference between Hill and him. Well, sure. Jacobs certainly brings some things that, that probably Hill doesn't in terms of being a good cutback runner. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it's just it's not the kind of thing you don't you don't give a third or a second round draft pick, certainly for a half year rental from a player like Josh Jacobs. That's just that's not exciting at all. Chase Young for a third round rental. That would have been worth considering. It's a it's a different level. Um, not sure why the Commanders, uh, you know, and and Ravens uh, didn't get together on that one. But it may have been the Ravens thought, you know, the the, the price we can pay is a third in twenty five, or it might have been a fourth in the coming year, or it might have been a fourth in twenty five. Chase Young has injury problems. That's his major issue, and the Ravens have a lot of players at outside linebacker they like. Um, that would be losing playing time because of this, including some combination of Van Noy, Clowney, and um, and uh, Van Noy, Clowney, and Oway, who've all had good pressure rates this season. So, are you getting a better pressure rate player? Sure, yeah. If you if you get Chase Young, you're getting a a, a better edge rusher. But then again, is the marginal gain to your team as important? I think the answer is probably no. Um, and the, the the 49ers, you know, certainly went all in on this. Uh, the good news is the 49ers aren't in the conference with the Ravens. The Seahawks are not in the conference in terms of their acquisition of uh, Leonard Williams. Uh, so even though the Ravens will play them next week and, and they'll play the 49ers later this year, which kind of is is, uh, is tough, they won't face them in the playoffs uh, in the higher leverage games unless they face them in the Super Bowl, and then we'll take our chances, won't we? So um, you know, as far as the, what the Ravens did today, Perfectly happy that they took a very measured approach. I'm glad DeCosta was working the phones. I'm glad he was looking for opportunities. Wouldn't have been upset if they picked up a lesser player at a position of need, backup left tackle, maybe another safety. Um, but they know where the where the current players are, in particular at safety, with regard to injury return, uh, whether that means Daryl Worley or where uh, Andrew Adams is in terms of being ready from the practice squad. So um, they, they know, you know, about where we are. Cornerback, we thought was a huge problem. I think we've got to look at DaCosta and salute him for his off-season actions there. Um, and, and that they found a set of players that have really worked out. And they've had a defensive coordinator who's been able to make that um, work as a whole. But I think it's it's the wrong time to be frustrated about the actual result of today for the Ravens. I think that they they were making their effort. I think I trust DaCosta to put the right price tag on other players, the only player I ever felt like he really overpaid for was Ngakwe. Um, but the the other uh, trades he's made, I think he's have been priced appropriately, appropriately, and uh, and they brought players in house. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox on that, but I think we needed to talk about that. Some trades today: Dobbs to the Vikings. Uh, you know, the Ravens just played Josh, Josh Dobbs. I don't think they're too concerned about the Vikings acquiring value there. The Vikings um, were were two faced. From, from Batman today because they also traded uh, Ezra Cleveland uh, as well. So as interesting set of, uh, of moves there, Ezra Cleveland, by the way, a guard, um, if the guards were not on the uprise now, the last couple of games for the Ravens and, and Zeitler's now had three out of four good games. Simpson's had a couple in a row that have been very good. Um, Ezra Cleveland might have been an interesting player for the Ravens to look at as well. But, uh, but he's gone. Of course, young to the 49ers, sweat to the Bears. Um, I do not understand that play, by the way. Why would the Bears overpay for, for Sweat for this year for a rental that has no value to them because they're not making the play, playoffs no matter what? And then I, I there will be no loyalty that Sweat has to Chicago that I, that, that I would understand. Maybe he'll like the city. Maybe he's from there. Maybe there's some reason. But but I don't see any reason for loyalty to anything but, but testing the market um, in this offseason. And I think if if the Bears want to retain him, and they certainly have the cap to do so as of right now, I think they're going to have to overpay a second time. So they're overpaying in terms of draft capital for a rental they don't need, and then they're going to overpay for a free agent to fill an important hole on their team. But they're they're going to have to pay over market, I would think, to retain him because if I'm Montez Sweat, last thing I want to do is play for a loser. And that's what the Bears are right now. They're they're a team that's rebuilding, and I, it just does not make sense to me. So uh, don't know why. The, the Bears made that trade, but it, it really looks like one of the foolish deals um, of the day. Uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones going to the Lions, probably the best trade of the day 
or could be anyway for the for the receipt for the receiving team. Now Donovan Peoples Jones having a terrible year right now. Uh, very few targets and five point four yards per target. But coming into this year, ten point oh yards per target, and that's been playing for Cleveland. A little bit of Watson last year. Little bit of Baker Mayfield the year before, whole lot of Jacoby Brissett built into that. And, and you know, it's three years he'd played before. So there's some additional Mayfield in there than than anybody else. Um 10.0 yards per target, 10.0 coming into this year. Um, that is a player I would think playing on a Lions team that could be a star again, could be really a revival. The price was right at a sixth round pick. Um, and he's a guy you might resign uh before. He starts to prove anything. So I, I like it for the Lions, who are a Super Bowl contender. Um, despite the loss to the Ravens, I, th- I think they're one of the teams in the NFC that has a real chance. Um, and I think that's a that's a big move to address a big weakness, and they did it cheaply. So I think of, of all the moves that were made this the, the, this day, that's probably the one that makes the most sense. Young to the 49ers is a is a it's a big swing. I just love, love the value for DPJ to the um, uh, uh, to the Lions. I'm sorry, younger than 49ers. I, I think I might have said younger than the Lions. But anyway, um, that's that's the news on the trade deadline. We're going to get back and talk a little about a little bit about the Ravens' offense here, and uh, and go through that as we did. One of the things that was real nice about this game is is the Ravens' offense remained efficient in a number of ways. They uh, were efficient in the red zone. They were four of four in the red zone. They're now 23 of 34 on the season. That's 67.6%, third in the NFL. The median in the NFL right now is at 53.1%. That's not exactly the average, but that's the average of the 16th and 16th and 17th teams is 53.1%. So that 67.6% is, is very high. It is probably not sustainable. But on the other hand, are the Ravens one of the best offenses in the NFL? Probably. Are they? Are they? Should they be third in red zone? If they are, does Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews give them extra advantages in the red zone? Probably. So maybe maybe that sixty seven six point six percent is uh, close to sustainable. Uh, the league lead, I believe, last year was around between seventy one and seventy two percent was the Chiefs in the red zone. So. Um, so anyway, a hopeful move in the right direction. Last two weeks, they've uh, they've been very good with, I think, nine for 10 now in the red zone the last two weeks after one for six cratering uh, in London against the Titans, uh, which uh, which had everybody a little bit panicky, including me, about what was going on. But uh, they, they, uh, they've turned it back on the last two weeks. Another big stat that I like to look at is series success rate, and they, they've also been extremely successful there. 21 of 28 first downs in this game, and this excludes one kneel down, 21 of 28 times they converted that into either another first down or another touchdown. Some people call that drive series conversion rate or drive success rate. It's not that that I think that doesn't really convey it. It's really series success rate. It's how how often is a series of downs successful? And um, the Ravens getting there 21 out of 28 times is outstanding. 75%. That'd be very close to a league leading total if it was not in, in a year. Um, they were 82% last week against the Lions after three consecutive weeks of being under 70, uh, which is low. So uh, really good run here uh, for the Ravens. Avoided turnovers, which helped to do that, because obviously anytime you turn the ball over, you automatically fail the series. So uh, that's one of the ways in which the Ravens could improve their series success rate was to keep keep turnovers a little lower, particularly fumbles, uh, uh, to do that. In watching the game, a few things really stood out, and I, I'll get to one of the esoteric ones first, uh, or maybe it's a fundamental one. I don't know if it's esoteric. Uh, was the footing on the field? Now they have that roll in, roll out carpet that they uh, use. And it's not a carpet. Roll out, roll in, roll out grass they use in Arizona. I don't know exactly what kind of system it's set on, but it seems like the turf itself is thin and um, mowed down to almost a golf green level. So when it starts getting picked up by cleats, you start noticing it. It is naturally kind of slippery. It seems to require longer cleats in order to plant properly on it. And there may be other factors too, because obviously I'm not the one treading on this. I'm only the one observing all the slipping on this. And there's a huge amount of problems with that for the Ravens in particular. Now, I can only tell you what I've heard from athletes before is that athletes really hate 
wearing longer cleats. Most of them have shoes. They have their shoe contracts, but their cleats, they're, they, they, the spikes, they're, they're not actually spikes. They're, they're studs are removable such that they can use a longer or different shaped um, uh, stud in order to get a deeper grip on the turf. To do so, they sacrifice some comfort, is my understanding, because those things tend to be harder pieces of metal um, that they have to step around on, and it's just not as comfortable to walk on that. So, so typically, players will go with the shortest possible uh, cleat that they can still get good traction in. Well, a couple of players were having problems, and, and this, this really went Justice Hill had some problems. We had some problems in the secondary um, but most notably, Ronnie Stanley had problems keeping his feet um, in the game, uh, gave up one sack that I think was really cleat related. And uh, there were other players. The pressures on the first drive looked like he was slipping a little bit on one foot. Um, I think, you know, the Ravens players know the Baltimore turf fairly well, and they're able to deal with it. And they kind of with a lot of experience, some of it hard won, they've come to realize what they what they have at home and what kind of shoe they need to wear. When the when the team is on the road, it seems like this needs to be an additional point of emphasis: is making sure everybody's getting the proper grip um, uh, on their footing. It's uh, it's been a problem at times, and whenever I see it, I I think this is you know why after a, you know a long warm up do they do they still have this problem. Uh, it, this is brings up a funny story. I'll go ahead and, and dip into this since I don't have anyone else uh, going down rabbit holes with me tonight. But Dwayne Starks played his first start in 1998. He'd already, you know, showed up as a uh, a third cornerback playing on the outside, some playing in the slot, actually some that year. Um, had an interception in his first game, but he didn't get his first start actually until they played the Raiders at home in a game they ultimately won 13 to 10. But Starks in that game. Uh, was opposite James Jett, and James Jett knew what he was doing in terms of of his cleats, and he was a he was a good cutting receiver who had ran good routes, uh, could lose people with wiggle, and could also lose people with his cuts just at, at the at the top of a route, just because he he uh, uh, w- was effective sharp cutter. That's more like the uh, uh, what we associate with the flowers, as opposed to what we associate with Bateman being the great route runner. So sudden athlete versus great route runner is a distinction I'm making there. So anyway, James Jett uh, lost Starks slipping a number of times during that game. He was slipping all over the field. And uh, Starks later told me, and this was when I wrote a story about the game a few years ago, um, that he had a shoe contract and he couldn't, he, apparently at that time, they, they couldn't exchange studs on the shoes as easily. And so he, could, he couldn't change during the game. But uh, very notably, uh, the end, the two plays at the end of that game, the Raiders lined up for a 57-yard field goal to tie. Okay? And at the time, it was much longer, 1998, than, than field goals had been kicked on a regular basis. Now we see a lot of 57-yard pluses in the NFL. That would, Back then, no way. Um, so they ran out their special teams unit. And they also ran out their offense, were prepared to snap the ball. The Ravens got on the field as with their special teams unit. And then Gruden pulled the kicker and the and the putter off the field, sent back in his quarterback and and only one other exchange, and then were set to run the play. Now, in, in this day and age, they would have allowed defensive substitution for offensive substitution at that point. But apparently in this day and age, they, they did not allow it. The Ravens ended up not getting two guys off the field, although they made a significant switch, and they ended up with 13 players on the field on that play. The play was ran from scrimmage, was run from scrimmage, and tossed down in the end zone, and who who else came up with the interception but Dwayne Starks? And his first NFL start, he put the game away uh, right there. But the Ravens still had this 13 men on the field uh, question to be answered. The officials talked about it for about two minutes after the game, and one of them came out, the, the, the referee obviously came out and explained the game is over with no further explanation than that. But I, I, the, the uh, NFL has since gone back to assign snap counts for the 1998 games. And that one was one of the ones that was done early. And it was out on GCIS. I'm not sure if it's, if it's still there 
in the same form because they may not have finished the year and they may want to hold back other ones. But in any case, it was there initially. And what one thing I really wanted to check was whether they had caught this or not. So I added up all of the Ravens players on defense and then divided by 11. And sure enough, there's a remainder of two. So they caught the fact that there were 13 players on the field and recorded them as defensive players. I always thought that was pretty cool that they were they were right on top of that. But that was one other time in Ravens history where uh, a lot of slippage played significantly into the into the outcome of a football game. And uh, James Jett went off that day. Of course, Dwayne Starks went on to be one of the great uh, Ravens corners of all time. Uh, first round draft pick, drafted 10th overall, and the Ravens actually were were – uh, quite lucky that they came to the end of his first contract, said we have to let this guy walk. It's unfortunate. And then he really never never had uh, anything like the success anywhere else. So, uh, um, you know, he's one of the few times that a first-round pick walks after the first contact, and you still say, wow, we really got value out of that guy because uh, he was a huge component of that 2000 defense, of course. Let's talk about some other things here. Uh, in terms of the offensive line, just a fantastic performance on Sunday. Uh, Ronnie Stanley, difficult scoring. We're going to get to that in the second part of this show. Uh, but other than that, the offensive line was terrific across the board. Um, in fact, they really provided Jackson an opportunity set that was unlike any he's had this year. Uh, we'll get to that in, in just a little bit. But actually, it's Jackson who kind of didn't deliver on the opportunity set in this game. And, and there's some kind of con- some conflicting signals you'll get on that. Uh, but a really great game for the offensive line. It's one of the things I take from this that I think is a positive for the rest of the year, that this offensive line seems to be gelling. John Simpson has now had three games without a penalty, and Zeitler has had three out of four games played well. Linderbaum's on a three out of four games well uh, stretch right now. Moses has generally been pretty good this year, and and he was back to just about his best in this last game. So I, I Positives basically across the line. The the one guy we're a little bit worried about at this point is Stanley. We'll talk about that a a little bit. I'll I'll give you some reasons a little bit later why I'm a little bit more positive um, in in terms of some of the things I'm seeing. But he's just got to score better in total at some point this year. And uh, and so far, it really hasn't happened. Uh, But we'll get to that anyway in in the second part of the show. Um. One question that keeps coming up is, are we concerned about the Ravens' roller coaster success at this point? And I guess I'm not that concerned personally at six and two. I'm not that concerned given the fact that, you know, they've played uh, most of their road schedule already. They only have three more road games. They've they've played uh, five of eight on the road roads so far. So, uh, you know, to play only three home games and and have six wins is a hell of a feat in the NFL for any team. I think we've got to look at that very positively. Um, they continue to be among the league leaders in most categories. They have one of the best ever Devoas, in fact, second best ever Devoa for a team that's six or two or worse um, at this point in the season after eight games. Uh, and they, they lead the NFL, in fact, in Devoa right now for all teams, even the, the, uh, um, the Eagles, for example, have a better record right now. So uh, actually, is that true? Not even sure. But, uh, but anyway, they lead the NFL in Devoa by a wide margin right now. And, and that's an exciting place to be. So I think we can understand to a certain degree why the Ravens didn't make a move at the trade deadline. Uh, when they have a lot of concerns, they, they actually need to balance, including playtime for the current players. How is the team going to assemble talent for next year? And you always got to be concerned uh, on a multiple year window with the tournament and injuries being such a fickle dance partner. So the Ravens may well go through this year, have significant injuries at an area where they didn't acquire anybody or one where they did acquire somebody. And that just being the things that ruins the season. I think that we can look at the, at the 21 and 22 seasons and say that Lamar Jackson's absence was a massive part of the 22 season. In the 21 season, I don't think they were going to go anywhere anyway, but the loss of Ronnie Stanley certainly was an enormous factor there. And there just was no possible suitable replacement to Ronnie Stanley once he's lost. Alejandro Villanueva was handed the job and that, of course, we know that did not work out. So um, after that, you know, in terms of the multi-year approach, I think you're always better off going for a multi-year window on championships. And I don't think you have to look any further than the 2008 to 2012 Ravens. Um, That 2012 team was their worst of those five years. I'll maintain that. That's a hill I will argue with anybody on. 
Um, the 2009 team was only nine and seven. It's true, but they had the best offensive line of that five-year period in 2009. Uh, or playing his best ball in his rookie year, Gaither playing at his best level in his second year of two that he was good with the Ravens, uh, and then that interior offensive line of Grubbs, Burke, and Yonda being as good as we've seen in the National Football League in a long time. So um, outstanding uh, uh, offensive line. And and uh, the, the 2012 team pieced some things together. They lost Ray Lewis. They lost Lardarius Webb, who were two of the most important defensive players. They were still able to hold it together, um, get in the playoffs. Joe Flacco got hot and, and frankly took him to a Super Bowl while, while some other things were kind of falling apart. Um, and that was really nice. Anquan Bolden, of course, played very well in the postseason as well. But, um, uh, you know, the, the it was not the defense – as usual, that would have carried them through to that 2012 championship. Uh, Terrell Suggs, after being defensive player of the year the previous year, uh, tore his Achilles, I think, playing pickup basketball in the offseason and missed the first half of the season. So that was uh, you know, a loss. He didn't play all that well when he returned. So uh, you know, we had, we had a, uh, a difficult run defensively uh, making it through. Very much like this year, the Ravens put it together with, with – bubble gum and duct tape in terms of putting secondary players together in 2012 and, and making it through. So anyway, I, I, that's my secondary soapbox here for really wanting to look at multi-year things, not playing this all in game. I just, I knew as soon as the Rams won the Super Bowl in one year, I knew this was going to be something that was just going to piss me off in terms of discussions on Twitter for a long, long period of time, because the Rams model is not a particularly good one. I mean, they've, they've, they've made some playoff appearances here. They traded all their number one draft picks. They're feeling the heat from it right now in terms of being a bad football team, but it ain't over yet because they're just starting to get into their, into their cap hell and worrying about trading players um, that they'd like to. And they're not anywhere close to being a contender again for, for some period of time. So, uh, I, I think the uh, uh, the Rams ought to be by now a cautionary tale. Uh, and the, the folks who say flags fly forever, you know, it's it's true. You'd, you'd like to have a championship every once in a while. I'd rather do it by having a bunch of lottery tickets and winning a championship than by going all in, slightly increasing my chance for a championship in one particular year, but then having to pay for it for years. And that's particularly true, I think, of season ticket holders. So at least when we're trying to understand each other about why people want to make trades and why people don't want to make trades, season ticket holders usually hate it because they have a vested interest in multiple years of seats. We have personal seat licenses we bought. You know, one of the things we know is we don't want to go to crappy football games a year from now. We don't have to want to have to pay for tickets for a crappy football team a year from now, two years from now, because they made a judgment similar to what the Browns did in signing Deshaun Watson or what the Rams did in terms of trading all their number one picks away. So, you know, that's, I think it's, it's just in trying to understand how other people feel about it. I think that's important to know. I do also understand why people who are fans of major league baseball or fans of the NBA or fans of the NHL for that matter, which also has a lot of trade deadline deals say, why aren't we making a move? Damn it. Because you know, we have to do something, you know, I, I get the frustration. Um, I, this just, at some point, you have to trust the Ravens organization for being extremely good about putting a proper value on things. And whatever you think about the fourth round picks that the cost of aid in 2022 or whatever it might be, um, you know, generally speaking. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Speaking, the Ravens have drafted much better than every other NFL team except for maybe one. And the fact that they've done that means that they're not in the position the Bears were in today. That Montez Sweat, a free agent they get from another team while also trading draft capital, is the way they rebuild their franchise instead of doing it by a draft pick and suffering through you know, heartbreaking decisions of which players you have to let walk, which is which is coming up for the Ravens this year. They, they, they don't have the money to pay for a lot of these players, and some great players are going to have to walk, and that is just the nature of being a great drafting team. It's not something to be afraid of. It's a natural consequence of being a great drafting team. The Ravens of 2002, if you lived through that, you know it didn't take long for that rebuild to occur. And the immediately losing all those players after 2001 led to a ton of opportunities for players like Kelly Gregg and Ed Reed and Todd Heap and others to come in and and play immediately and play very well and be forced into, frankly, a trial by fire uh, more quickly than they otherwise would have. Anthony Weaver, you know, I, I, the, the list is, is extremely long. I'm not I'm going to miss people if I if I try and do it uh, um, by my head. But 2003, they were, again, a very significant contender, one of the best teams in the National Football League. Um, and uh, and we're off and on for, for for the next several years. In terms of the uh, um, uh, you know the, the 2019 team uh, had to largely be rebuilt after 2018. They had a lot of players leave. Earl Thomas, I'll remind people, was the big free agent they picked up to offset some of the huge group of of uh, players they lost. Earl Thomas didn't have anything to do with that rebuild. Errol Thomas had it was okay, but he wasn't particularly good in 2019. By 2020, he's getting in a fight with the other safety on the team, and he, he basically was cut. So, you know, it's it, but the 2019 team did did they struggle through? Did they have did they have problems? No, they were they went 14 and two with a resurgent group of players, largely from the 2018 draft in terms of Andrews and Brown and. Um, some others, uh, Hurst having a, having a better year in, in that second year. And uh, of course, uh, Lamar Jackson, um, it's not something to be feared. There will be turnover. The Ravens need draft picks to manage that turnover. And uh, I, I am hopeful and optimistic that the Ravens are going to be able to do that in 24 and glad they didn't, um, sacrifice 24 for a slightly improved chance in 23. Anyway, enough of that for me. We'll go on to some other offensive things from this game. Ravens are outsnapped in this game, seventy-one to sixty. Um, that's been a regular symptom so far of the Monken offense. Uh, you know, despite they had the good the good game moving the chains, they went twenty-one to twenty-eight. Um, they are having trouble having drives that are longer. Some of it is a problem. I'm using air quotes of having some more explosive plays with this offense. Uh, and in this case, there was a little bit of a problem, not only in terms of the um, onside kick that the, um, the Cardinals recovered, but also in terms of a couple short fields the Cardinals gave the Ravens that shortened the Ravens' drives. So they ended up uh, not with a uh, you know a, a win in the um, in the snap um, game, even though they, they they probably should have, given they they were slightly more efficient. Um, as an offense, but the Cardinals also had some uh, grindy kind of drives where they were getting uh, 10 yards on either two or three plays or, you know, 13 yards on, on three plays or 14 yards on, on three plays uh, where they were running additional plays, obviously. And, and uh, when you, when you tend to play a little bit of small ball, you tend to be able to win that, that, uh, that uh, snap ratio. It is important um, to win snap ratio for defensive rest. So the Ravens in particular have a significant issue on the defensive line with having a lot of defensive line snaps played this year. They play nickel or base every snap. They play about 15% now, I think, base defense. I've got that down here, but it's about 15% base defense. So about 15% of the time, they need three defensive linemen. 
85% of the time, they need two defensive linemen because they don't have anybody kicking in from outside linebacker this year, which means they're going to play something like 2.15 defensive linemen per play. Now let's do a little math here. If you have 2.15 defensive linemen per play and you have five defensive linemen, then that means your five defensive linemen have to average 43% of snaps. That's pretty darn high to start with. And since Brent Urban doesn't play anywhere close to to 43% of the snaps and nor does Broderick Washington, that means Matt Abike and Pierce are playing much more than 43%. Of the snaps. And in fact, I have that for you right here that Matt Abike for the season has played 65.5% of snaps and Pierce has played 56.5% of snaps. So those guys, in particular Matt Abike, I'm very concerned about his ability to maintain freshness as a pass rusher at that level of snaps. Having a great year, but Matt Abike wore down in the second half of last year a little bit. And he also was worn down in games where he's played more snaps. Uh, over the course of his career, so uh, in fact, the the five offensive line, the, the defensive line that I'm looking at have averaged exactly 43.8 percent of snaps for the year. So that's uh, is right on the money in terms of the uh, uh, you know the, the kind of math in your head uh, thing we just went through. Uh, so anyway, uh, would like to to see a way that Pierce and Matabike can play fewer snaps. One of the post. De- trade deadline deals the Ravens might make is to sign and Kung Su. And I think that would be a really good move. If they want to get a guy who could play about 25% of the snaps, I think he'd be it. And he could take a sixth defensive line position that would be active on game day. And that effectively would be snaps that could come out for either Pierce or Matabike. Replace Matabike on some earlier rundowns, maybe replace Pierce on some third downs. And all of a sudden you have some relief for both players and I think he would make a lot of sense. Probably a vet men guy, kind of a perfect Ravens type signing. Reportedly, they've already been talking to Sue. So uh, I think that'd be exciting. Sue certainly wants to play for a contender and a ring um, if he possibly can. So I think that would be a, you know an interesting move and a, and a really good one if DaCosta can pull that off. What else do we have to talk about here? 29 run, 31 pass in this game. Ravens have been really good with Monken at keeping the run-pass balance pretty good. Most of that's been a matter of choice in games that they've been leading because they haven't really been trailing badly in any game uh, this year. That The two games they lost, uh, that one they were leading against the Colts, and one um, they lost to – geez, I should remember this, and I'm having trouble remembering it right now. Uh, but anyway, they, they, they have not trailed badly in any game this year and they've uh, uh, they've been in a position where they could continue to run the ball. In this game, uh, what was nice about the run game wasn't the yards per carry, obviously. It was the fact that they ran it right down the throats of the Arizona Cardinals when the Cardinals knew it was coming. So they got the ball with, you know, nine minutes left, or actually less than that. It was about seven minutes left in the in the fourth quarter, and they ran about four minutes off the clock just having a – uh, leisurely all-run touchdown drive. The only pass they threw was the um, defensive pass interference on Beckham in the end zone. Um, but otherwise, it was it was nine plays, nine passes. Uh, sorry, nine plays, nine runs, uh, and mostly a, a healthy dose of of Gus Edwards getting the football. So um, that was impressive, not only for the Ravens' um, offensive line and scheme, but also for Edwards himself, uh, really delivering on a on a series. Uh, that uh, they knew the run was coming. Edwards has done that a few times uh, in his career, and he's been a major weapon in terms of closing out games. Uh, I'm not sure Derrick Henry gives you a lot more than Edwards. He gives you some more. I'd be the first to, to admit that. But you know, if you're if you're talking about getting to the end of a game, and you're really talking about uh, about exchanging Henry for Edwards, you know, then you have to think about what am I giving up to do that. And I'm not sure that that uh, you know that was a it's it, if if you have to give up a lot to do that I probably wouldn't do it. Um, it would be kind of nice if you could alternate them every couple plays, you know certainly. Uh, but there aren't that many play you know opportunities you have where you want to um, uh, where you have an opportunity to 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 get first downs easily such that you can you can exchange them every two plays say. Um, but I think that would be a, uh, a an interesting use of a second power back, and possibly Jacobs could have 
could have filled that role um, as well. So, uh, uh, you know, there are other guys out there and just the price was not right. The Ravens will go with what they have. Um, was interesting in this game, Owen Wright did not get any carries. He was activated for the game, thought he might, but 100% of the carries went to either Gus, who had 34, or um, uh, Hill, who had 31 uh, carries in this game. Talk a little bit about on the defensive episode, which I, I, I'd encourage people to look at. The first defensive episode in particular with Cordell Woodland. Cordell's fantastic, by the way. Great discussion about football, so really enjoyed it. But if you go back to that, the gambles that the Ravens did in this game, very well managed. In fact, both teams managed their gambles extremely well. The Ravens didn't go forward on fourth down at all. They didn't have a single game management decision where they put a lot of chips in the pot, even with an advantage. So they had a fourth and three near midfield. The analytics would probably tell you it's a slight positive expectation play to go for it there. Harbaugh says, don't care if it, well, I won't, that's probably not exactly how he stated it, but how the thinking might be. Um, Harbaugh is basically saying, I don't want to create a play that potentially is going to cost us the ball game against a team like Arizona that we're better than. There's no reason for us to, to, to give us a chance for a large high variance play that could potentially give them the ball at midfield when you know we think we're the foot with we're the better football team, we can eat two percent loss and win probability on this play to not create a play that might have a thirty-five uh, percent difference in win probability associated with it. No, it probably wouldn't be that way, but it might be twenty. Um, and uh, it was fairly early in the game, uh, so you're, t- you're talking about a you know not wanting. You need to get the right payoff in terms of expected win probability to take a big risk like that, and you don't take you don't go for a small positive expected win probability to do that. Uh, got a great question um, in the mailbag about that. Uh, I've tried to explain it well with a couple of different examples, but uh, that's the best I can do. And the, the guy who asked that question, I do want to make sure I get him. Uh, is Lucas Hagar um, did a good job? Uh, no, no, Lucas Hager actually had a different question we need to get to later, but, uh, but we had, we had good questions about why wouldn't the Ravens take every positive expectation play they have. And, and it, the answer very simply is for the same reason you buy an insurance policy An insurance policy is not a positive expectation, um, contract for the buyer. So if you're buying a life insurance policy, for, for example, uh, it's not a positive expectation play in terms of the dollars you'll spend in premiums relative to uh, what you get back in claims. And the reason is because there's an insurance agent who has to get paid and there's a company that has to make a profit. And you just you can't come up with a situation where that's going to end up being a, a, you know, a reasonable deal for the uh, sorry, a, a positive expected value play for the buyer. What it is is a risk mitigation play. That's why they call it insurance, right? So Harbaugh's decision to punt there on fourth and three near midfield is a risk mitigation play, pure and simple. And he's he's paying to mitigate that risk. Or he would get paid to take more risk is another way to look at it, but he's just felt like he didn't get paid enough. So understand the decisions. The Cardinals made every decision correctly. In fact, in the Cardinals position being the worst team, they are incented to an even greater degree to take every positive risk they can get. So they went for it on two fourth and ones, completely understand the move. It's the right place in either in both cases. They went for it on two two-point conversions. Now, if you look at a two-point conversion chart, one, they had to be successful 41% of the time. So I think they made the right call. That was the one that took them from 11 or could have taken them from 11 to nine. So that was a, that was a good decision. Uh, and the other one, they only needed about a 3% chance of success to be break even uh, because they were down. Uh, it was going to get them within eight. So they could, they could uh, have a chance to, to catch up. So that one, they, they absolutely had to, it wasn't really a choice at all. Neither of the, of the um, uh, onside kickoffs was a choice either. So they managed their risk extremely well. The Ravens just won, a good number of those plays. And thanks in, in part to Michael Pierce uh, went over Michael Pierce's uh, play a lot during that defensive episode, particularly the second one. Um, I think it probably was the greatest game ever by a Ravens nose tackle. And uh, if you want to hear some, uh, I don't know if it's flowery language is the right, right term for it. But if you want to hear us uh, talk up Michael Pierce in a way that I think he richly deserves, uh, go listen to that second episode on the defense. Got to talk about Lamar next. And, 
I think there's something being missed about Lamar's performance here by the mainstream media, and I'll get right to it, is that the Cardinals provided, and the Ravens offensive line, the combination of those two, provided Lamar with a fantastic opportunity set for throwing the football in terms of time and space. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the Cardinals' contribution to this, they rushed five-plus on seven occasions. They rushed four 19 times, and they rushed three five times. So they barely rushed four guys per play. Um, only two, you know, only a plus two in terms of that. Uh, I think that works out to, to 4.06 per play they rushed on average. So that ain't much. Um, you know, they certainly weren't, weren't going crazy blitzing, although they did have a couple of seven-man um, plays. Actually, that's going to change that a little bit. Uh, put me up to about 4.18 uh, on average. Still not very much. So the, the Lamar threw for 6.0 yards per play when they rushed five plus. When they rushed four, he threw for 4.8 yards per play. That's not very good. Obviously, I'll get into that in a little bit. But when they rushed three, five times, Lamar threw for five total yards, 1.0 yards per play. Um, that's not uh, at all what you want to see. So the three-man rush was very effective. Get into that a little bit why later. Ample time and space, ball out quick, and pressure are three ways that I divide out the pass rush, the, the passing opportunities for Lamar. Lamar had 13% ATS. That's 42%, a season high in terms of ample time and space opportunities. On those plays, he went four of 10 for 20 net yards. Okay, so it's 13 plays, three sacks. Among those, he got off 10 passes, only completed four of those, 20 net yards, net of the sacks, 1.5 yards per play, 20 yards on 13 plays. It is the worst figure I have ever recorded. That comes a week after the best figure I have ever recorded in terms of Lamar dealing with pressure at 22.4 yards per play. So just the opposite end of the spectrum. Let's go a little further with this. With ball out quick. Lamar had nine such opportunities. That was 29% of his throwing opportunities, on which he went nine of nine for 52 yards. That is common. You have a very high completion percentage when you throw the ball out quick. It's often a wide receiver screen, some dump off to a back. Um, you know, sometimes a screen gets grounded at the feet of a receiver or whatnot, but most ball out quick opportunities are completed. And so he did 5.8 yards per play on those. Because those plays are usually small ball plays to either to one side, trying to get a wide receiver screen going, trying to get a running back screen going, maybe trying to get a first down play on third and three or four. Um, it doesn't usually add up to too much. 5.8 yards per play in Lamar's case in this game. About average, not spectacularly good, not bad either. Um, but he didn't, have, uh, he didn't have many of those opportunities, only 29%. That left only nine plays, nine total plays, where the Cardinals generated a pressure event within three seconds. Now you say, well, wait a minute, they sacked him four times. Well, yeah, they sacked him four times, but three of those times were after Lamar had three plus seconds in the pocket. You don't believe me, by the way? Go ahead and, and retime every one of those sacks other than the Stanley sack given up. Uh, and, and you can do it actually right on your DVR. If you have the game DVR, just pause it right at the snap, and, and click ahead one frame at a time, and you'll see each of those is is over 90 clicks. And Lamar has plenty of space to step into those throws at that point. Uh, but he doesn't get rid of the football. He holds it a little longer. He holds it a lot longer in some cases and eventually runs himself into a sack. So uh, unfortunate that he could not find anybody over that entire period. Some of it is you know, probably some frustration in dealing with having eight drop to uh, coverage on some of those plays and seven on others. It doesn't always create clean throwing lanes. It doesn't always create a clean situation. Um, but Lamar's got to find ways to beat that. And longer developing routes do have a chance to work out because there aren't too many. There are not too many routes that require three seconds to run in the NFL. In fact, for the quarter where the quarterback releases the ball, uh, Walsh used to have something. He would say that the, the typical play was released at right around 2.1 seconds and was caught by an, a receiver outside the numbers uh, on a ball with air underneath it between 41 and 42 yards from the line of scrimmage. 
And so, you know, they had a perfect spot they were trying to throw to. They knew what they they had in terms of speed at receiver. Uh, they knew what they were trying for in terms of getting a jump ball slash pass interference opportunity or, you know, try and try and have a receiver who's leaving at that point. But, uh, you know, it's it, those balls don't necessarily take that long to get out, even when they've got a lot of air underneath them. So uh, it, it was a case where I think a lot of this has to be put on Lamar. The offensive line did a great job in this game. Maybe some of it is Monken in terms of, of scheming properly. And maybe some of it's even on the receivers for not coming back to Lamar. Uh, or giving up on the routes after three seconds and and not playing uh, the kind of street ball that you'd like to see them play. But uh, it is a case where I think that that uh, uh, Lamar certainly has to take a portion of the blame for not getting the ball off. One thing that I've said about this that I really like to see from Lamar is better manipulation of the spies. So we've got the Cardinals aggressively spied Lamar in this game. So uh, Kaiser White was back there and uh, uh, another uh, inside linebacker was off ball uh, a fair amount of the time, number 10. uh, And I'm I'm forgetting the name right now, but anyway, um, when those guys are are there and if you're using two spies, you really got to try some manipulation. They also provide the underneath zone coverage, but their job is to, uh, if Lamar breaks the pocket, immediately rush the passer. So Lamar has some ability to manipulate a player if he knows what he, if, if he if he can think to do it. You can do it two ways. One is step up in the pocket if the offensive line is giving you space in that direction, but don't leave it. So just step up, get those linebackers to commit up, and you create space between level two and level three in the middle of the field where Lamar can certifiably do a ton of damage with a multi- multitude of weapons, whether that might mean Flowers, Andrews, um, Beckham, whoever it might be, um, space gets created uh, there. On one of the sacks, by the way, he did have that exactly that occur where Andrews was breaking ob- open over the middle of the field, and it was a it was a terrific opportunity to manipulate the two up guys and and, and make a, a nice easy throw to Andrews for for you know a very good gain. Anyway, the uh, uh, there was not probably enough of that on the on the place where he did get sacked late. Um, and uh, and that was a lost opportunity. The, the way number two that he can manipulate the um, safeties on that on that opportunity is to step outside the pocket, and to um, as soon as he does that, that immediately triggers the linebacker on that side. I think I said safeties for a second, but the linebacker on that side to rush the pocket um, and vacate his zone. Well, that immediately obviously creates throwing lane um, where you can hit somebody between level two and three. And if your receivers are trying to find space and if you have a little bit of a mind meld going on, as, as Lamar does with players like Fowers and, um, and uh, Andrews, then you, you should have an opportunity to make a play there. I think that's it for, for Lamar. The ball was out in 2.78 seconds um, on average, which is kind of a low time to throw despite numerous ATS opportunities. Some of that is a function of some of these ball out quick throws. Uh, which which made up a decent percentage of the total, and obviously they can t- they can be out very quickly sometimes in in uh, one second, so they bring down the average. On the other hand, some of these sacks and the other longer developing plays would have brought up the average. I thought what the Cardinals did really well is they got after Lamar very quickly when he went outside the pocket, and they got after Lamar very quickly when he left the pocket. And we saw that show up in Lamar's run stats. They were not good. Um, He's supposed to be able to break a scramble or two per game. I think he had one 13-yard run in this game, but he might have had five runs for 17 overall. I think that's right, 3.4 yards per per run. So uh, not a great game for Lamar on that. And and that's what the Cardinals were really taking away in this game. So if you want to find space, manipulate those spies and hopefully uh, um, create space in the passing game to beat them. All right. Let's talk a little bit other scheme elements in this game. I think we talked about Edwards. Uh, this is interesting. Edwards got 21 touches on the 34 plays he was in. So he really workhorsed this game. Two as a receiver, 19 as a runner. Um, can't say enough about Edwards, the runner in this game. The 4.2 yards per carry doesn't even begin to talk about what a fine day he had uh, because the Cardinals knew the run was coming. And, you know, your your yards per carry is going to be reduced by that. It's going to generally be reduced by the Ravens uh, in terms of how they play offense this year. But on that last drive, they went back to a lot of 12 personnel with Kolar on the field. That's where Kolar got most of his snaps in this game. And uh, they at least tried to try to do a little more. They had a little bit of 13 on the game, by the way, too, with uh, Ricard, Kolar and Andrews on for some plays and Ricard, Kolar and likely on uh, a place. 
We saw Likely get his first target and his first reception since week three for 10 yards. Really nice to see that. Uh, I was really hoping that something would be schemed for him such that he'd have an opportunity to come back and make a catch in this game because obviously uh, that's something that's a weapon that the Ravens don't want to forget about. And it's also a player you need to find out what you have. So uh, by all means, let's not let's not put him in the in the doghouse or in the you know the, the, the penalty box or whatever you want to call it detention for any extended period of time. Let's get him back out there in the offense and see what he can do. Um, go to uh, uh, Kolar. We talked about playing fourteen snaps, pretty much all as a run blocker. In fact, I think I think all fourteen snaps that he was in, they actually ran the ball. So it's kind of a tell that Charlie Kolar was on the field, that they're, hey, we're going to run the football. Uh, other teams may see that, may pick up on that on that tendency uh, for future weeks, so they need to be careful about that one. Kolar still, I don't think he's had a target since week one or two, so it's uh, it's been a long time for him as well, and and a guy they need to find out what they have. He's a year two guy. Um, you know, they, they if, if they want to run some 12, it would behoove them to understand what they have in Likely and Kolar this year so they can figure out which guy is going to help you in what situations when they do want to run 12 and where they might have an advantage running 12 over running 11 because you know they're running a lot of 11 this year and uh, and they're doing a good mix of, of mixing up the receivers. But next year, some of these receivers are going to be gone. Aguilar, Beckham, probably not going to be here. Uh, so it's Bateman, Flowers, and the rest – in Gilligan's Island terms um, that they plus probably a draft pick that they'll have. So, um, you know, it'll, it'll be more difficult to, to uh, uh, find obvious targets. It would be nice to have some tight ends that, you know, are, are, are guys we thought likely was that guy at the beginning of the year. Huh? It just hasn't worked out that way. Sometimes that's a case. I did figure him for less targets given how many wide receivers they brought in this off season and the likelihood that Monken would play more 11, obviously than Roman who played more 12 and 13 and 22 than, anybody ever pretty much. So uh, it's a, it's a natural consequence of the change in offensive personnel that a a player like likely is going to get less targets. And unfortunately it's been exacerbated by the fact that he had the drop against the Colts uh, at such a key time. He's caught the other balls, you know, this year. So hopefully uh, they get him back in the offense to a greater degree in the, in the future. Uh, what the Ravens did do a good, good get a good job of this game was not using a lot of eligible receivers on blocking in a game where they didn't face a lot of rushes from five plus men. So they had seven set and four chip blocks. This was definitely a game where you felt like they did not fear the Cardinals' edges the way they felt feared the Steelers' edges or Will Anderson in Game One or the Bengals with Trey Hendrickson or or the Browns with Garrett and uh, and. Um, and Smith, uh, they just they they did a good job of cutting down on their total set and chip blocks, 0.35 per play. That's a, a really low estimate, and uh, very good uh, protection was afforded nonetheless. So a good a good balance of uh, of how much they stayed in for set and chip blocks. We saw them use the unbalanced line three times. Uh, now they used it 19 times in weeks two and three. So uh, that was obviously quite a bit more. But uh, uh, this was a game where they got back to it a little bit and they got back to it a little bit on that final drive. And let me check my notes here and make sure that that was the time they primarily used it. They actually only used it once for a three-yard run on the final drive, which is an interesting play with Stanley lining up um, out there. They used it twice um, to finish off the touchdown drive, uh, the last 13 yards with uh, an unbalanced right and then an unbalanced left uh, where they had, I believe, yeah, Stanley on the outside on on both cases. That's the, that's the typical way, by the way, you, you tuck your less mobile um, tackle uh, in one notch and uh, a player like Stanley, who, uh, you know, for, for, for some of the things that have not been going right this year, still looks like he has some decent mobility. I love Moses's mobility on poles, but generally speaking, I want Moses as a, as an inside power player. And I want Stanley uh, being the guy who works it out on the edge in terms of who he needs to block. And he's, he's been very good at that. So um, interesting use of the unbalanced line. I'm glad it's in the toolkit for Monken. I think it might be a bigger part of the season uh, if the Ravens are able to roll up some additional big, big leads. So that'll be fun to, uh, uh, to look at. They did not go to the six man line uh, at any point during this game. 
All right. Well, we'll be back for uh, for part two. I'll be back for part two of this show in a little bit. We're going to talk about the offensive line. I uh, hope you'll join us for that. And we're going to talk about uh, individual player performances from the skill position, some of the players we haven't hit on yet, a, f- a few big ones. We'll go through some mailbag questions. I'll give you my MVPs for the game. Uh, and that'll be pretty much the second episode. want to ask people, if you're interested in a doing a film study short, hit me up with a DM uh on twitter i'd love to hear from you and i'd love to get a um uh show set up with you talk to you i'll get back to you very quickly and talk to you about your idea try and keep it in a nice little silo so we can get it done in about 20 minutes oftentimes there's some thought experiment people have a question they want to discuss that would be interesting a topic they want to debate briefly all of those are good but but try and make it a a fairly small topic and not you know how we rebuild the ravens from from the ground up if if lamar jackson was hurt somehow for example uh that doesn't uh, you know that's going to be too long a conversation for this sort of thing uh we really appreciate the loyalty of the audience to this show and if you're still listening to my voice here after an hour and two minutes um Really appreciate that. And I hope you might take the time to introduce somebody new to this pod. Uh, The other thing you can do in terms of algorithms and whatnot is to leave a comment on the pod. Always appreciate your positive comments. There's been a ton of positive reviews out there, but they look at the recency of the reviews and determining, you know, what shows up as a Ravens podcast. So um, that's a nice thing to to have is good reviews out there. Uh, If you comment, on the podcast, or if in particular, if you comment on the offensive line or defensive articles, I'm going to try and respond to all those. Um, I, I think I finally figured out how I can see the comments again, and that's been a problem so far. So if I didn't answer a question that you had. I apologize for that. Um, please uh, don't don't let that be a reason not to comment. Uh, and if you're watching the thing on YouTube, feel free to comment there too. I'm going to try and take a look and make sure I answer comments on that. Um, it's busy. During football season, a lot of pods to do, but I will try and get to everybody's question. And by the way, you always have hashtag film study mailbag to hit up for questions for the show. We'll get into those in the second part of the show. Uh, Again, really appreciate you folks that have been great supporters of the show for all these years. And uh, I can't tell you how much uh, you mean to me. And it's, it's what's kept me excited, frankly, doing this. It's obviously not the money, but it's it's, it's quite uh, uh, gratifying. To have you know listeners who really love your content the way you folks do. That'll be it for this first episode, and we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.